welcome to The Art World, What If? I'm your host, art journalist Charlotte Burns, and this is a series all about imagining different futures. We'll talk about how we navigate the churn and change currently shaping culture. What are some of the biggest shifts that need to happen for art to stay relevant in a changing world? In each episode, we'll be talking to some of the most interesting people in the art world, asking them, what if? What if? What if? What if? What What if? What if? What what if? Wait, wait, but what if it isn't? (laughs) In this episode, we welcome Naomi Beckwith, the Deputy Director and Jennifer and David Stockman Chief Curator of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. Over the years I've been a journalist, if ever I have something difficult to think about, Naomi is someone I like to try to talk to because she's such a precise and a completely independent thinker. Naomi is not someone who says what everybody else does. Instead, she approaches art and the industry on her own rigorous terms. Naomi and I began our conversation with something that inspired her from an early age, the link between science and art. Naomi, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Charlotte. You're very welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. So I wanted to start in a slightly unusual place, which is in the world of science, because you didn't intend to be an art person. You initially trained as a scientist. And prepping for this conversation, I watched a PBS interview with you. You were talking about how you'd written a paper on the Italian scientist Enrico Fermi, who came to America to work on the Manhattan Project. And then later you realised there was a monument to that process in Chicago's Hyde Park by the artist Henry Moore. And you talked about how the sculpture represented the new possibilities and the shiny new world of this tech, but also meant that something we didn't know was coming. And that seems like an apt place to start this interview amidst great change, great potential and also deep uncertainty. You're right. It actually is an interesting crossover from the world of science into art for me, because both essentially, if they're doing their work right, are dealing with questions of the unknown. And I think that's perfectly appropriate for a podcast called What If? Essentially, I grew up in this neighborhood with this monument, and it was something quite different from many of the other monument-like things that I'd seen around. There were plenty of Grecian figures in and around the south side of Chicago. There were men on horses, of course, as usual, roaming around the city. But here outside the library at the University of Chicago was a sculpture that was completely abstract. But if you can imagine it, Harry Moore loved the idea, as did the rest of the St. Ives group, of a kind of abstract language that was fielded through the forms one could conceive of in nature, biomorphic forms that looked a little bit, in this case, like maybe a knuckle, a bone structure, something that had a big rounded top and then an overall rectangular form with a void in between. And it was this shape that, on the one hand, reminded me of the mushroom cloud. I am a child of the 80s. I grew up in utter terror of nuclear annihilation. I'm sad that we find ourselves pondering these questions again. But I was also a child that knew that the more that you began to play with forms, the more that you could neutralize it. And I think this is what Henry Moore was doing, trying to give us the sense of the shape of a nuclear reaction but also understanding that if you harness it in the correct way, you could do something with this great power, this great potential, this thing that could, of course, destroy us, but could also give us endless energy. That could also be a sign of our intelligence 
and our curiosity. And that could also lead us into a future that we couldn't imagine beforehand. What on earth are we going to do with the knowledge that comes after that? And what on earth are we going to do with the power that we still hold? Well, they're great questions indeed. What are we going to do? I'm going to bring it slightly into a more prosaic space by asking how you bring that to bear, your, your scientific background. As the oceans rise and temperatures increase, what can the art world, what can museums learn from the scientists? You're you know, at the head of leadership now in a major institution. How much is this spoken about? If anything, there's been sort of two divergent conversations around this. Really, you know, our survival as a species and then the role of art institutions inside of those conversations. The first conversation is really how do we as museums just do better as global citizens? How do we reduce our carbon footprint? How do we recycle the majority of our materials? These are things that have been coming to us both in terms of municipal pressure, but also been long-standing conversations internally. We've been working very deliberately and diligently with external groups and are part of a consortium of museums answering this very question. You don't hear about it because it's not sexy, right? It's not sexy to talk about the cardboard we use. It's not sexy to talk about our waste management systems. Nobody wants to hear that. The mundanity of it isn't dazzling. And that's okay because in many ways... It is our mundane actions and our carelessness in our mundanity that has gotten us to this kind of crisis. On the other hand, there is a very public sort of conversation that we're seeing, which is this series of protests that you see with, for instance, stop oil and tomato soup going on, a bango. And I forget at what museum people are gluing themselves to the surfaces of framing. This is another kind of forced conversation I would have. But it's a conversation that really asks, I think, a very key question around this climate crisis, which is where do we turn our attentions and where do we turn our resources as a society? Obviously, I agree that we are well within, I think, a decade of sheer irreversible terror in terms of the way the earth will or will not function. And while I very much agree that we need almost a kind of desperate stunt to call people's attention to it. I don't agree that it's a zero-sum game between culture and climate. Thinking about it, I think, as either or, the arts or the climate, thinking about Van Gogh's sunflowers or mashed potatoes, I think lacks, lacks serious imagination. We have all the resources and power to do both, and we shouldn't be pitting one against the other. An interesting thing related to this in terms of museums is, of course, museums preserve the past and in very specific climate controlled conditions. And what we've experienced over the past several decades is this boom in museum building and in terms of our travel around the globe as a kind of community, but also the expansion of museums domestically. When we think about that, this idea of phenomenal growth of institutions that have gone from Um, you know, maybe 30 or so people inside an institution like the Guggenheim to now corporations spanning the globe like the Guggenheim. How do we think about collections? And this is a kind of two-pronged question because on the one hand, there's always the imperative to grow more. And right now we can discuss it in the lens of diversity and the time it would take, the drive and scope and capital investment it would take to grow the collections of the Guggenheim, for instance, to achieve any kind of equity or parity. 
And on the other hand, there's this sense of so much stuff. Like when we look at the annual um, acquisitions across major American museums, the number of works coming in as gifts specifically is enormous. It's about 60% of the figures that we look at in the Burns-Halperin report. So it kind of makes us scratch our heads and say, well, museums are talking a lot about equity and parity and they are trying to do the work. And then directors and curators will say to us, well, there's this tide of gifts coming in that means that we're kind of dampened in what we can achieve. Is there a moment in which we have to say, okay, are museums just taking too much stuff in? Do we have to rethink accessions, both from the point of view of achieving parity and equity and and also from the point of view of sustainability? Can we keep growing? First of all, every museum has to be judicious around what their mission is. We're always going to be offered far more objects than we ever can absorb. I think we want to take museums at their word when they say they want to conserve culture. Now, there have been so many challenges to what that means. There's so many challenges to what we define as culture. And so all those kind of challenges, I do believe, actually, if anything, has allowed museums to think about and expansion of their remit, which I don't think is the same as growth for growth's sake. That said, it is the case that we are all limited in the ways uh, in which we can acquire. I think it behooves every museum to look very deeply at those missions and decide for themselves, where are we going to focus energies? We not only have limited sort of physical space where we have to hold everything, but there's a limit to what you can ship where. There's a limit to why you should be shipping. And there's also a limit to your mission. Your mission is not just there to be an all-embracing thing. Your mission is there to focus. You and I have spoken very much about the fact that there are calls in these renewed missions, in these growth of collections based on a real almost maniacal need to conserve things, which I don't think is a problem. The question is how. We know that in those calls for equity and diversity, we're still looking for the end game. The question for us, really, I think for all museums, is if diversity is going to be a goal of yours, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a kind of parity in your collection, assuming that your collection is primarily Western Europe and North America? Are you looking for a kind of specific percentage representation? I don't know. But I do know that if I look at the collections of many museums, especially around North America, you're going to find, if you're not a culturally specific institution, that your collection is pretty much 85% white and the vast majority of that white men. So what do we do about that? I also realize that many institutions have taken very specific steps to then remediate that. And the steps sometimes have been incredibly radical. We see stories of massive, major decessions of work that brings in millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars toward the goal of diversifying collections. But if you were to look again at those numbers, and let's say the first time in which I looked at those numbers was around 2013, 2014, if you were to look at those numbers again today, you will find that they barely budged. And I do think this is where simple math helps to do the analysis to realize that when you have thousands of works in your collection, buying 10 works a year or buying 15 works a year is not going to put a dent in your statistical numbers overall. So if we are reaching certain percentages, if we are reaching a real parity 
in the collections. Those are the goal. If we're even uh, reaching majority people of color in the collection, we need to understand that it will take many years, many decades, and millions and even billions of dollars to actually reach those goals of parity. If it took you 50 years to get to 85% white men, it's going to take you 50 more to get to a kind of balance. And I do hope that my colleagues and I begin to really get a grasp on the long tail enterprise that this is going to be. I want to dive into that with you, this idea of the mechanisms that we need to ensure this. And and actually, that's something you said to me in one of our last conversations. You said, this is like the climate. There's a need for immediate action, but this is also going to outlive us, not only our tenures, but our existence on this planet. And we're talking about the same stakes, really, with what museums are and who they're for and how they prepare themselves to be more than sort of precious jewels as they move forward through time. But also thinking about change, I think you're totally right when you look at the contextual totals that, of course, you know, buying 10 works this year and 20 works next year isn't going to make a dip in your overall collection. But it should make a difference. What we should be seeing in the data is that if we look at the data of the last five years or 10 years or 12 years, we should be seeing if we just focus on accessions, we should be seeing greater change there. And we're not really seeing that either. I mean, the Uh, Biggest volume of collecting of work by women peaked in 2009. For black Americans, it peaked in 2015. Our latest study shows that those results are both around a fifth of what they should be if you look at the demographics of America. And the figures are especially compounded if you are a black American female identifying artist, in which case the problem is around 13 times as bad as it should be. And so we're not actually even really seeing that shift in terms of acquisitions, which gets us to your first part of what you were saying. Why are we doing this? Is it representational? Is it reputational? Is it a means to an end? You know, why should museums do this? And are they having that conversation? So first of all, thank you for reminding me of my climate analogy. Um, It is true. You know, we have a planet burning, but we also have in many ways museums burning and they're not literally burning. They're burning, I think, with a pulp from the public that we would be able to demonstrate a better way of being in the world, a better citizenship, a better sort of cultural responsibility. This is the kind of burning question that people are uh, throwing at us. And absolutely, you know, like the climate, we're going to have to do long-term changes in order to stabilize and then move on in a kind of um, uh, happy cohabitation with the world. When we ask why we're doing this, I think it's a bigger question than just uh, numbers and statistics. I think it's a question of what does it mean to actually engage with culture now in the world where we do not have the kind of luxury to act like a little village anymore. We all now have too much access to information. We have too much access, I think, to critical thinking around how we receive information to then uphold one kind of model of cultural excellence as the model for the entirety of the world. That's just not going to work anymore. And I do believe that for, well, at least in the case of my colleagues, we've all come to understand that, right? So when I begin to do work like advocate for Black artists, I'm not advocating for Black artists just for the sake of having more Black artists in a collection, which, yes, I do want. What I'm advocating is for a broader conversation around what culture does and means and how it can function. 
what begins to happen if you stop looking at, let's say, painting as the highest form of art and think about it in terms of sculpture or performance or the interrelation of media? Um, what kind of stories do we tell about human history and human excellence if we just began to kind of, if not invert, at least pivot some of the foci that we have in our cultural conversations? I also think that in many ways, this question of bringing in these other narratives, making other artists and other kinds of objects visible has been too much of a success in which in the media, especially the social media sphere, there is so much more visibility for queer artists, artists of color, much more celebration of women, especially if we began to look retrospectively at artists of a certain age, the kind of revival of the careers and the presentation of the careers of artists within their 70s, 80s, and now even 90s, right? These are the things that we're seeing rising to the fore of, I think, our kind of media imagination. And when you see that, right, when you see so many incredible Black artists on the cover of like magazines and on billboards, then you begin to imagine that we've come to a better place. So the danger is to equate then that kind of media visibility with equity. And that's not the same thing. And I do believe that's why people are shocked when they hear the numbers. But at the same time, right, imagine a much more um, equitable and equal world. I'll also say one thing, too. Don't underestimate the number of objects that an institution brings in year by year. Ten objects a year, 15 objects a year. For an institution my size, is fairly normal. Yes, we get massive tranches of other gifts. We, of course, like many institutions, rely on incredibly generous people. But, you know, we're talking about collecting work in the dozens, not hundreds, year after year. So I think even for a lot of art professionals, when you say 10 to 15 works a year by POC artists, that sounds radical to them. But again, as I said before, that doesn't put a dent into the work that you have to do. That becomes step one of a multi-generational task. There was a symposium about the future of collecting at the Whitney. And you talked about the stubborn percentages and the need for new interpretive strategies. What we are asking really is, what do these objects do once they join the family of the collection, right? It is basically like intermarriage, right? If you have an intercultural marriage, you should then have intercultural exchange. And that's what I mean by new interpretive strategies, right? Greenbergian formalism will not work on the cartoon school. Don't try it. Right? So the question then becomes, how do we make sure that we bring in new voices and new forms of knowledge as well as new objects? That's going to be paramount. It's also the case that we work in museums clearly because we're thinking of a future beyond ourselves. But we have to imagine ourselves if we're going toward a future of a different kind of collection profile, then we have to imagine ourselves then doing the work of making sure that that collection profile happens. It also has to be about cultivating young collectors now to imagine a different remit for what may be even right now against the grain of the market. It also means really training people to broaden their own perspective on collections now. We have to be sort of active partners with our patrons, with our supporters, uh, with our market friends, um, and asking questions, how do we do this long work 
of making sure that we are going to see this long-term growth in diversity in our collections. The market right now has become the biggest voice in the room, in most rooms that we're in. And museums can't really separate themselves from that because they're funded by trustees and most trustees are collectors. And there's a spiral. How do we move away from that dominance of the market? Because we hear from curators that as they advocate to buy a work, say by an older artist who's being rediscovered as they become a nonagenarian, if you outlive them, you might find success. They spoke to us of their frustration that you can do the work, you can bring in the scholarship, you can even have the exhibition, but the market creeps in because it creates a sense of urgency around certain figures. How do you, as the chief curator, navigate that? It's really funny. I love the way you described it as a spiral, right? right? <laughs> because with spiral, and I'm in a building that is a spiral, but I think you meant it in terms of a downward spiral, maybe. Uh, well, I meant, <laughs> meant certain curves of repetition, perhaps. I think there's a way to turn it into a vicious, uh, not a vicious, sorry, but a virtuous cycle. <laughs> maybe I'm making Freudian slips. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Listen, you know, the market is dominant because it's glitzy and it has things that people understand like numbers. I mean, let's also understand it's graspable. My job and the job of my colleagues is to do something that gets people to grasp the ineffable. And I think every curator hopes to do that. And some are better than others. I'll just be real. But at the end of the day, you're A, not going to win every battle, but B, you have to build the trust of your patrons and supporters. There is a reason why you've ascended to the position that you're in. You have to find the language and the ways and the means to advocate for that which is important to you. And it's not going to be the same for every person. There are always going to be a person who's only interested in the market, but I don't think any board or any support group of an institution is wholly comprised of people like that. There are people who are there because they care about objects and they care about future and they care about the reputation. So if you begin to talk about the ways in which an artist has reconfigured your mind and reconfigured the language of art and maybe done something that was the root of what is the white hot market now that we ignored some time ago, these are the conversations that are worth having. But I'll also say, look, the market is not everything to everyone either. There are plenty of artists who want to sell, obviously, but they are still looking for that validation inside of institutions. They're still looking for the publications. They're still looking for scholarly respect. I don't know any artist who wants to die with nothing but sales and no retrospective, right? Nothing but sales and no survey. So it also behooves us to tell our supporters that we actually sometimes have to remember that we are the goal and not the sales. We are the prize. And why are we the prize? Because we actually have the foresight and maybe a little bit of the discernment to really think about what's going to be important into the future. Or at least we have the foundation and the platform to create importance for the future. I think we can't underestimate our power, just like Henry Moore, I guess, would have said I love that. You also talk about your trustees there. One of the kind of what ifs of this show is thinking about that idea of governance. What if we could separate governance from funding? Would you advocate for something like that? Something about that sounds incredible. I have to think about this just a little bit. What if we could? Yes, I actually think that could be interesting. But 
if I were to give a counter example, which I don't know well, the question is, is it that much better, let's say, in a European context where funding might be coming from the state and governance might come from other people? I don't know, right? It's really a question about where do you put your energies and then what do you get back from those energies? How much time do you spend uh, really trying to justify the moves that you make with your supporters and you know, institutional leaders? Do they trust your vision, right? Do you have a vision? But I, I do agree, right, that the boards have become the primary source of funding for institutions. And while I don't have a total distrust of that, I actually think it puts a lot, an incredible amount of um, uh, pressure also on the board, right? I don't think they enjoy being in that position, but they feel responsible. So many of them rise to the occasion. Talking about leadership, you're back in New York now. You're at the Guggenheim, which is about to undergo a change in leadership with the departure of the longtime director, Richard Armstrong. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that new direction, how that's feeling internally. But also, I want to talk to you about New York itself. It's about to undergo this enormous generational shift. You have, obviously, Richard at the Guggenheim. At the Met, there's a new leadership structure in place. There's change expected in institutions all around the city from MoMA possibly New Museum, possibly Whitney, possibly Studio Museum. There's a lot of talk in the air about change coming in the next several years. And this is also happening in the market, if you think of legacy plans um, happening around Kingpin galleries like Gagosian, Gladstone, Goodman, the closure of Metro Pictures, galleries like that. So it seems that this is an unprecedented moment of sudden rather than staggered generational change and new leadership vision. We're in the moment before the enormous change. And it feels like it could be momentous. New York is the centre of the art world. Still, it is the hub of activity. What do you feel about that big generational change? Yeah, it's a surprising one, honestly. This sounds really naive, but I don't think I saw it coming so quickly. But you're right, it does feel like something's on its way, though. You know, look, I'm not trying to kill any icons here <laughs> running institutions out. I wish you all long and healthy careers. But that said, uh, it did feel, we do see something on the horizon. You know, yes, there's an exciting, a super exciting generation coming. And I do think they're going to grapple with very different questions around institutions than the generation that has been, you know, my educators and my leaders for the entirety of my career in education as of now. And it first starts with, I think, um, the deep questions that this uh, current generation had to grapple with, probably over the last 25, 30 years. How do we sustain institutions when the state just plummeted in support? How do you talk about culture in the realm of a globalizing world, right? Those, I think, were the big questions. How do we sustain ourselves? How do we become global? The generation to come really still have to, I think, grapple with those. We just talked about this idea of patronage and who's supporting the institution. We have, of course, talked about um, the idea of institutional survival in the uh, climate crisis. But I also think the bigger question now is citizenship and the role of museums now when you have a world, especially a Western world, that is so deeply cynical about the possibility of nationhood and the possibility of public space and civic belonging. So there is a reason why when someone wants to get attention, they walk in a museum and they tape themselves or glue themselves to a famous painter. It feels as though museums are almost the last site by which we can surface 
all these questions around our future. It's a scary thing, but it's not, I think, an uninteresting one. Why are museums the last public space? And what becomes a responsibility of a museum as the last public space? I am not um, someone who's so Pollyanna who believes that art and museums will change the world. But I do believe they can, right? I do believe they can become the sites where we begin to imagine change. I do believe they can become the sites where we can literally talk safely around certain ideas. I do believe they are the sites, especially through artists, that allow us to deal with our anxieties personally and politically. So why not take advantage of that platform and imagine what the museum can be in trying to hold this world together that is still grappling with its own post-war legacy? I think that's so interesting. And it's only going to happen if museums can change themselves, of course, first, which is a big responsibility. How do you go about thinking about that? And how much of that is rooted in this sort of balance between local placemaking and global thinking? And by which I don't mean globalized in this sort of, which is a business word, really, more the idea of cosmopolitanism. I don't see a distinction between the two, honestly. And I think my model for that really comes from my sort of South Side, the Chicago upbringing in, you know, a kind of post-Black power, pan-Africanist way. Two things really came out of that. And one is for my kind of education with the capital E, the breadth of the way that I've learned to navigate the world, there was no distinction between me imagining myself as a kind of political figure and imagining myself as a cultural figure. This project of blackness and blackness and formation was about a kind of being able to exist in an American polity with an identity formation that had been informed by certain cultural practices. Real and imagined, right? Real, the food, imagine, um, you know, a kind of, I don't know, a sartorial relationship to Africa. <laughs> Everyone running around in kente cloth, right? And daishikis. So these things were one in the same for me. But it also engendered a second thing, which is to say that in that relationship to Africa, again, both real and imagined, they are Africans in my family, right? But though at the same time, there was a kind of fantasy of Africa as a place inhabited wholly by kings and queens, right? There was no underclass. <laughs> and all those kings and queens had been then denigrated in the Atlantic crossing to the States. Okay, that was, again, a fantasy. But what it began to engender was a real curiosity and relationship to the African subcontinent. So by the time that I am sort of rising with my interest in art and culture, Anokui and Wazer becomes you know, one of the dominant voices around cosmopolitanism. He makes perfect sense to me. The locality of the version of a cosmopolitan Africanism on the south side of Chicago was exactly the thing that allowed me to imagine then not only relationships to the African subcontinent, but the relationship to what we now call and probably shouldn't call the global south. These were shared understandings of our unfortunate relationship to a narrative of cultural teleology in the north that needed to go. That then becomes a global, international, cosmopolitan project that sat right beside those little African dance classes that I took on the South Side. You spoke recently to me about this idea of that 
you sort of lamented a little bit this sense of cosmopolitanism on the wane in the cultural imagination these days. Can you talk a little bit about how you're experiencing that? Yeah, I do think that there's a way in which um, people are trying to revive the local at the expense of the cosmopolitan, but not in relationship to it. I'm thinking about a kind of deep interest in a kind of black study that really wants to focus just on the U.S., very specific kind of historic moment, uh, maybe right after the abolition of slavery. And I'm not saying it's not a problem. Historically, I'm deeply interested in it. But I began to really wonder what happens when we lose the idea that um, there wasn't just a distinct Black culture that grew up in a crucible of one site, i.e. the American South or what became the American South. But there had always been these cultural exchanges with Africa and the Caribbean and North America, all the way up to the quote-unquote emancipation of slavery, right? That never stopped. I think we have a way of fixing some of these narratives around what uh, certain places and what cultures are at present, when in fact, there's always going to be swirl and exchanges and different understandings. There's something, I think, maybe about my own instincts that feels as though if we're not thinking about any kind of cultural moment as a continuum and as an exchange with other peoples, other languages, other cultures. And if we're not imagining what happens in both that collision and that melding, then we're probably not really doing a very good job of grasping what's happening. One of the reasons I constantly go back to someone like Okwe and Wazer, besides his sort of capacious genius in general, is because for him, there is no shame in history. There's no shame in colonialism in Africa. Was it a problem? Yes, but it's not something that he needed to be ashamed of. He's much more interested in what happens when you take these kind of colonial structures and try to overlap it over a pre-existing cultural and political hegemony that already existed in Western Africa and what strange surprises became to come out of that and what happens when you try to recuperate that in decolonization. He was not ashamed of the Nazi past of Haus der Kunst right? and that it was, in many ways, a Nazi design project. And so instead of sort of sweeping it under a proverbial rug, he was much more interested in what happens when we talk about that design project. And when we talk about um, where objects literally went, how it passed through the Haus der Kunst and how that actually can be uh, helpful in restitution projects. This idea that we don't have to kind of recoup a glorious past in order to give ourselves credence, but we need to actually not be ashamed of what's happened and begin to grasp it for ourselves and talk about the possible worlds that can come from that. I guess what you're talking about is what if we could imagine different futures? And this is your point of the spiral that I know you've talked about as being such a part of your practice, this idea of, again, not a downward spiral, but a reaching back and forward at the same time and having that relationship between the both of them. And you mentioned as well growing up, you were born and raised in the south side of Chicago. You came of age in the 80s. Um, in the wake of the Black Power movement, and you you attended a very experimental public school that fostered high academic achievement in its pupils, 98% of whom were Black American. And a sad thing about this is that you had no idea that as soon as you left school, that Black history would no longer be part of your formal education. 
anywhere else. That's also a kind of huge what if, like what if that continued? Well, there are models that have worked that just haven't been um, expanded or developed or picked up enough. You know, this is, you're a product of something very specific in so many ways. You know, in many ways, my education was like a fish in a fishbowl. You don't realize that not everyone else has undergone the same thing. I just assumed even white people knew about black history. Obviously, No, (laughs) I am. Actually, I didn't. I did know it was something distinctive, but I didn't know how much till much later. And I agree. There have been models in terms of trying to create new citizens. I mean, that was a project in new citizenry. Again, no, not at all distinct from cultural history and arts and imagination. Those two things always went along with each other. We have to keep doing that work. And in fact, I did a whole series for the BBC called What If My Textbooks Were Black? And I walk through certain kind of cultural histories centering Black figures in that cultural history and had um, conversations with people across disciplines, dance, music, literature, beginning to recoup a notion of American history. I also believe there doesn't have to be some massive exchange, i.e. that we throw out, you know, all the history books, or maybe we do throw out the history books. We can rewrite some of them. (laughs) We don't throw out the history, right? No shame. Uh, But we need to expand those histories. We need to really begin to either understand how we can talk about, let's say, in my context, American history with the contributions of immigrants, because that's what we all are, right? I'm kind of tired of living in a country where people constantly turn to me and ask where I'm from, but they don't turn to people with white skin and ask them that question when my family's been here for hundreds of years. So what is that presumption of blackness as foreignness? So what if we began to teach our history in a different way that doesn't presume that whiteness is the norm, which it is actually not and hadn't been for quite some time? What if we began to do a kind of cultural education that allows us to imagine that there are all sorts of forms, not even integrated in the market, that allow people to understand what aesthetics are, what beauty is, what object making is, uh, what community means. Um, what if we actually spend time archiving and researching those things? And again, not against objecthood, but along with. And if we do that, we might have, let's say, a better understanding of the work like an artist like Nick Cave, who we are dazzled by these objects, but those objects have a very specific material history to them. So I'm really interested in a kind of model of that's always about expansion, always about asking that question, what are we missing? Not just what if, but what are we missing? Um, and that takes that as the core of its intellectual enterprise, rather than one that starts with certainty and begins to say, this is the best, this is the greatest, and this is the only way forward. I love as well how this extends back. This is something so formative for you because you've spoken about growing up in in such a vibrant cultural scene where the object was just one thing, it was one part of that creativity and imagination and the value of, of creativity and culture. So it was art, it was dance, it was performance, social spaces, and so much more were enmeshed. And then you spoke about how when you became a museum professional, you were sort of like, oh, wow, it, we're, we're just talking about the object. And so this has been a concern in your practice for a long time, you, you know, from your exhibition, The Freedom Principle, specifically looking at jazz and experimental music in the 60s, especially in Chicago, and the influence of that on contemporary culture. And now, of course, visitors to the Guggenheim between now and April can go and see the amazing survey of works by Nick Cave. So 
Tell us a little bit about that strain of thinking in your practice. You know, I'm not the only one doing this work, and that's exciting. I just think that that's part of that generational shift. I think many of us either weren't raised with the same kind of academic presumptions, and many of us, of course, again, don't have a shame about where we've come from, even if we weren't raised in the depths of those kind of academic presumptions. I'm, you know, not ashamed of a wonderful sort of working middle class background on the south side of Chicago. Again, I thought it was vibrant, so I just want to share it. There is a real glee in talking to people about the beauty of the free jazz movement. Because, you know, where would we be without it? We'd be a much poorer world. It's also, you know, the everydayness of it. It's the conversations, it's the music, it's the food you eat while you're talking about the music you're listening to or dancing to. And it is life um, rather than a relic of a life past, which is a shift, I think, that you're right, is a generational one. Let's not forget that that's not new also to the Western art project. That was exactly the shift that got us the great modernist enterprise of the 19th century. That's the shift that got us genre painting. That's the shift that got us Manet, right? The question is, whose mundanity is going to be quote unquote valued? I love that. Will you remain in museums? Do you see your future in the institution? Yes. I hesitate because I have no crystal ball. I wish I did. If I did, I work in the markets. Um, But look, there is only one site that I can think of that allows you to do multiple really incredible things, to sit with objects. And it is amazing to be able to sit and stare with something, uh, stare at something for a long, long time. It is amazing to have the benefit to study something in depth and then make friends with something. It is also amazing to come together with colleagues who are all about the mission of the care for history through objects, that people are trained to tell stories, that there are incredible resources put to the idea Art objects are important. And it is unusual to be in a place that is wholly committed to sharing that with the broadest possible public. And then I don't think there is an institution that has really worked to rethink itself over the centuries, moving from these kind of really idiosyncratic gentlemen's collections to one that really began to ask questions around civic practice and civic life. There's something so incredibly important and exciting about that. And I can't imagine another institution that would do that for me. It's really interesting because it's sort of like the job that museums said they wanted, but didn't really apply for. And then (laughs) now they're sort of landed with it because there's been this complete shrinkage in the public sphere otherwise of spaces, Mm -hmm. which is why you see, like you say, these big arguments around monuments and museums because where else are you going to go do you think they're up to the challenge can you think of museums doing that work well right now i think it will take some training i don't claim to have all the answers to you know how to engage with this new pressure um of the expansion of our civic roles um i think we have to begin to reimagine ourselves a little bit we have to reimagine our public as very different from that kind of enlightenment subject i think we still have to reclaim some of that space from the white hot market and 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 tell a compelling story about why we exist so it'll take some work but i don't think we have a choice look you brought up a very important example 
of the destruction of monuments. Most of the people who took that statue of Colson down and threw it in the river will not be able to give you a disquisition on the importance of monuments, right? But they do understand symbolic value. And we, as museum professionals, are the keeper of symbolic values. And we need to respect people's understanding of that and walk with them through that. But I also want to think about the ways in which when the world began to open after the pandemic or when I was living in the city in the wake of 9-11, how many people ran to the Met? How many people went to museums? People still trust us. And it doesn't look like trust, but I think the agitation and the advocacy inside our spaces is a sign that they're really looking for us to help them also navigate all these symbols thrown at them, especially when those symbols come in the form of death and destruction. I think you're right. It's so true that that's where people go to to find that connection with communion, I guess, with other, other people's emotions, whether past or present. So I'm going to ask you a couple of what ifs just to round us out. Okay. I was watching one of your videos that you'd done. It was a show called My Chicago and you were driving around Chicago. You were talking about the role of a curator as being a translator. And the host said, a lot of people just say they don't understand art, that it makes them feel uncomfortable or stupid. And you said, yeah, this happens every day of my life. And so I thought, well, what if art didn't make people feel uncomfortable or stupid or lacking in some way? Art doesn't make people feel stupid. People just don't trust themselves. So I think the question is, what if we actually help people trust themselves in the face of something that felt bigger than them. And I think if we did that, we'd probably be better able to talk to each other about things, right? We'd be able to talk to each other um, in this kind of social space of political agitation. And we'd definitely, I think, be able to talk to each other much more cogently around cultural exchange. Okay, another question for you. What if the canon didn't matter? By which I mean artists today, not all of them find the canon to be totally relevant anyway to them. What if it doesn't matter? Um, Every artist has a canon that matters to them. I think first it's important to talk about multiple canons. No artist, or at least one that I find compelling, sprouts from the head of Zeus fully formed. Every artist is looking at something that came before them. The ones I find the most compelling are the ones that are the most self-aware around that. So I think the question is, what if we took a little bit more time to understand what those canons are that are important to that particular artist and then begin to judge for ourselves whether or not this is something we want to engage with. What is the what if that motivates you? Ooh, that's a good question. The what if for me is what would I do if I had unlimited resources? But I think that's a utopic question. What would I do? This sounds really selfish, but I build out the Guggenheims. <laughs> they wouldn't look like this one, though, and it probably wouldn't be in the form of Abu Dhabi. But I'm really interested in what would it mean to have a proper network of museums, right? Not just distinctive ones, but network of museums doing that work of cultural exchange. As we you know, do on a small level now at the Guggenheim, sharing exhibitions. But, you know, what if we were a multi-sided institution that thought of itself much more unitarily. 
What else would I do with unlimited resources? I do a lot of conservation work. <laughs> I do a lot of arts training. I do a hell of a lot of professional development for people who don't traditionally have access to the arts. But I also think it's very important to not ask the question about winning the lottery, but also imagine, what am I going to do with what I have now? And again, in that spirit of not being ashamed of what might be perceived as not enough or a lack, but really understanding I still have a gift. I have a gift in this position. I have a gift in this incredible institution. I have the gift of, of, of access to a wealth of incredible colleagues who have intelligences beyond my imagination. What are we going to do with it now? What is the Guggenheim going to do with it now? Right now, I think we're going to open Abu Dhabi. And we're going to ask the question, what if the center of our conversation around art isn't going to be cited in the Western world? What are the stories that we're going to tell when we have a global collection in the Middle East? And what then is our responsibility to the growing stories that are going to come out of that amazing rebit? Naomi, this has been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. For joining us. You're welcome. I always love our conversations. I also always love our conversations, Charlotte, and really, really look forward to more and, and thinking about what happens if we don't just change the numbers, but begin to change our hearts and minds. I think that's a perfect, perfect question to end us on. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Till soon. You're welcome. Bye bye. Thank you once again to Naomi Beckwith for that conversation and for helping us entangle some fascinating what-ifs. Naomi is a next-generation museum leader, someone actively working to recalibrate the field in the most exciting and dynamic ways. Next time we'll be talking to Glenn Lowry, who's been the director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York since 1995. We talk about his concerns about democracy itself, divisiveness in culture, among many other things. If we start to believe that trustees whose political positions are different than ours or whose financial investments don't align with our values are no longer welcome in our institutions, I think of that as fascism. I don't like what you do. Therefore, you are excluded. That's a bad place for us as a society to be. It doesn't matter whether they're of the progressive left or the reactionary right if they're supporting the programs and artists we believe in. That's all coming up in the next episode of The Art World. What if? This podcast is brought to you by Art and the editorial platform created by Schwartzman and. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Mm-hmm.